Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and Trilon.org where you can get tickets and codes and showings and merch. Everything related to the trial on. Uh, you'll see me tonight in your dreams. My name is Jason Daphnis. I can be found on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Don't fall in love with me, but I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Everybody look at the clock. It's 34 seconds, 35, 36, 37. You'll always remember second 37 of the podcast, Try Love. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me at Chitake Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can spend an hour with me. Uh, that's not good. I don't know. I fucking forgot, guys. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Arby, please. Hey, it's not about quality. It's just about consistency. It's about remembering to do it. And I don't I do that either. <laughs> ah, you barely. You, I, that, I, I got zero for you, two, have, my man. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered why the order is Aaron last? And it's because I, I know that you're going to forget. And hopefully hearing three uh, people do it before you reminds you. Everybody yes, Everybody listening right now just checked this uh, recording time and was like, "This motherfucker! This this episode is eighty minutes long." <laughs> yeah, I, I have, I've, uh, I, I think uh, uh, not to see how the the you know sausage is made. Uh, I don't think I've literally ever remembered that, but then I always come up with one because there's always like a note with a single quote, and I'm like, "Ah, that's gonna be my quote," uh, but I don't have one this time. Uh, so, yeah, okay. hey, bud, you uh, you definitely don't always come up with one. <laughs> I think I that, most, that very I think rarely happens. I, I think, think recently I've, I've winged it pretty well, right? You you won it, okay. Uh, I think um, this is about right. how this always starts. No. So we should probably talk about the thing that we're going to be talking about, which is Days of Being Wild, another Wong Kar Wai film, uh, screening at the Trilon as part of the World of Wong Kar Wai virtual screenings, maybe coming to the Trilon physically later on, but we're covering it now. We'll retweet this later when it shows again if it shows again um but uh of course a 1990 film directed by wong kar wai starring a number of uh actors and actresses from the previous film that we covered of of uh, wong kar wai's as tears go by uh listen to episode 101 for that uh but i want aaron to tell me a little bit about what this movie is about yeah days of being wild 1990 you said it wong kar wai film uh the film centers around yuddy played by Ye- uh, leslie chung a Hong Kong womanizer with a troubled relationship, uh, to say the least, with his adoptive mother, Rebecca, played by Rebecca Pan. Uh, uh, His mother has kept the truth of his true mother from him for all of his life. Uh, And the film also kind of looks at a a number of characters revolving around the character of Yeti. Um, Other characters involved include uh, Su Li Zhen, played by Maggie Chung, a woman who sees Yeti for a brief period of time uh, romantically uh, and goes through various um, kind of uh, mental health issues and, and problems after they break up. Uh, Luong Feng Yang, uh, played by Karina Lau, is a cabaret dancer who begins seeing Yeti after he breaks up with uh, Sue, the previous woman mentioned. Um, the film also sees the return of our boy, Jackie Chung, played uh, playing Zeb in this movie. Uh, he's Yeti's longtime friend who desires to have the lifestyle and confidence and kind of be the cool guy that he sees 
uh, Yeti Az. Last, but certainly not least, Andy Lau plays uh, Tide, which, brief note here, Wikipedia says his name is Tide. I don't remember that. Yeah, I, I Googled sure around. That, yeah. The, the uh, technically, in the original language, Chow Z, uh, Chow is the, I believe it's the Cantonese word. Uh, the, the Chinese character for Tide uh, is Chow, and it is also the word Tide, the English word Tide. So this, is, this is kind of um, like the fan, the fan name, or is this part, no. of, part of the lore? No, so I don't know, but Chow Z, uh, which is uh, what his characters are represented as on Wikipedia, literally translates to Superboy. So I don't know if this is like, there might be <laughs> like, oh, like I, I don't actually, <laughs> yeah. this is part of my ignorance with like, a language that's not English and all this, but like, I don't know if this is like an intentional, like kind of mashup of like tide, which makes sense uh, like metaphorically for his character and who he is and his profession later in the film and like his relationship with some of the characters, but also like Superboy also kind of fits his role in the film and how he interacts with, with Maggie Chung's characters. I don't fucking know, but he's a policeman turned sailor who comforts, uh, Su Li Zen after her breakup with Yeti. Um, the film is the first in an informal or kind of thematic trilogy of films by Wong Kar Wai. The other two films being In the Mood for Love and 2046. Uh, Wong Kar Wai's first collaboration uh, also uh, with noted cinematographer Christopher Doyle, who has worked with Wong Kar Wai on many films and also worked, that's right, also as a cinematographer for Gus Van Sant's version of Psycho. Sorry for that ridiculously long summary, but that is Days of Being Wild. I got to be honest, I think you're getting really good at the summaries. Yeah, that had a lot of color. <laughs> I didn't breathe once that entire time. I just I just kept uh, did, like internal breathing. You Even know, more important. With wind instruments, they just don't have to breathe. Yeah, just like cir- circular breathing. Yeah, so, like you like put his hands over your nostrils in a really uh, menacing manner and said, let's see how long you can go without breathing. And apparently it was romantic and not at all like really scary, actually. Sure. Yeah. yeah. If I had a dollar. Uh, so I'll start off. I really enjoyed this film. I had a, a really good time watching it. I, it's another morning movie. Um, we should talk sometimes about our morning movie routines because I, I realize I have a routine. Movies. I realize I have a routine, a routine for it. Like my water bottle is full, my coffee cup is full. I got a biscotti recently for this. This and a biscotti, oh, so all nice. a man needs. Oh. Uh, and and you know, watching it, it my computer won't stream things in 4K, but I got to watch it on a big TV. Really nice experience. Anyway, uh, I feel like this is the first Wong Kar Wai film proper that I've seen now. Of course, this and As Tears Go By are the only like, two films I've actually seen. But I think this, in all the uh, reception and sort of contemporaneous or contemporary media that I that I read about it, is sort of like seen as Wong Kar Wai's real, like his formula in play. Like what people would come to recognize as Wong Kar Wai's style is sort of in full force here, of course, sharpening later on, but sort of you're seeing more than just the building blocks like you did with As Tears Go By. Um, it, it being in the, set in the 1960s or rather in 1960 proper is, I think, really helps suit the style of this movie. It really helped me like connect with a whole lot of what it was doing and what it was saying and what like it was visually presenting to me. Oh boy, just, you're going to like uh, In the Mood for Love a lot. Woo, because yeah, and like that's it's not my only takeaway, but one of my big takeaways about it, this is like, I'm now genuinely really excited to get to the rest of Wong Kar Wai's movies. Um, we can talk a little bit about that later. Uh, as Aaron was saying, there's a little bit of mythology around some elements of this movie, like some character names and some motivations and such. Uh, there's like very specifically the very end of this movie intrigued me a lot. And I was very happy to realize that I was not the only one confused. Uh, but it of course has, you know, multiple versions. I found a really good write up of some, uh, differences between the international version and some of the more widely available versions of this movie of this movie. Um, anyway, I just, I really 
I really loved how it builds its characters. I really loved uh, how it's shot specifically. There are I always take timestamps of gifts that I'm going to make for this for the episodes. I only end up usually making one, but there are a good few contenders for this movie just because it looks and sounds so beautiful. Um, I, I, of course, we don't rate things before we uh, uh, talk about them on the podcast, but this one's getting a pretty good score. I think I know how I feel about it, and I cannot wait to find out what you guys feel about it. Jason, real quick, uh, before we kind of continue, do you know the the restoration that we're watching that's streamed as, as through the Trilon stream kind of as a as a part with like Janus Films and then Criterion and whatnot? Do you know which version that is? Because I actually did not hear about the different yeah. versions and whatnot. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I believe it's based upon the international version um, because the uh, and, and again, de- definition of international versus, you know, what was local or, uh, you know, the Cantonese version, I guess. Um, is is the part that I'm still trying to suss out, but I believe that what we're watching now, this this recap of the differences, was written in 2008, so obviously long before any you know considerations were made about uh, this 4K re-release. But um, I believe what we were watching was based upon the, it's like you know the d- director's definitive version, and it's based upon the international version. So some of the more okay. you know less commercially successful or like Western viable elements of the movie appear in this version that we saw um, through the trilon. Could we real quick cover what the differences are? Cause I'm super interested there, in that. There, there are a lot. I'll bring them up as we go through. There's probably okay, too many great. to list off the top here, but like some of them are significant. Some of them mean a lot. And some of them are just like, Oh, th- instead of this shot, it's this shot. So wild. Okay. Yeah. Gates it's a good being wild. I'll, I'll link this piece in the uh, show notes. It is just from a blog by David Boardwell, who I don't know. I do not endorse, but did a pretty good job of breaking down scene to scene. What's different. Ooh, Boardwell. I, I believe he was mm. tried in the Nuremberg oh, no. trials. Sorry, oh, Jason, no. you're canceled. Cody, what did you think of this movie? Sup? Uh, great breakdown, Jason. Uh, I've this time I've, you know, as we're kind of plotting uh, this filmography of Wong Kar Wai, I found myself latching onto the same sorts of things here with Days of Being Wild that I did for As Tears Go By, and that includes the camera work, which has been mentioned already. Um, rightfully so. This is the first of many collaborations between Wong Kar Wai and cinematographer Christopher Doyle, as I think Aaron mentioned. And it's in this movie you really start to see the low and high angle shots that stand out, um, especially in later films uh, that they are both part of. Not to say that every scene is characterized by like extreme Dutch angles or anything, but it becomes a more prevalent means of showcasing characters in a way that's uh, fond, but also uh, just a little crooked. Um, and as we touched on last week, it will, uh, and we'll almost uh, certainly bring up again, Days of Being Wild comes off as a sort of exhibition of feelings rather than like an interwoven narrative necessarily. Not to say that it's plotless, but the the emotions of these characters are are the thing I think primarily on display. Um, we deeply inhabit the lives of these f- anywhere from four to six characters and we witness firsthand their attempts at finding love. Uh, the vague sort of geography uh, articulated in this movie helped me in particular, um, kind of like the geography did in as years go by um in this case it's a little different but it helped me rationalize that these people all have their own kind of secluded corners of the world one works at a a shop that's kind of like a hole in the wall one uh, is a cop that patrols a a vacant intersection and kind of stands by a phone booth Um, one lives almost in like a sort of ivory tower so to speak tethered to a mother or at least mother-like figure and not only do these spaces serve as representations of these people in a similar way that the construct of time also kind of represents them, but it's also a matter of them finding ways in which they can occupy other spaces and or find a way in which others can occupy their own spaces. And that's kind of what love is here uh, in this world. It's a, a time and a place and a space. Um, with this being 
that sort of exhibition of feelings and with me sort of feeling out what I might need to be prepared to invest emotionally while watching, I came to accept that I would probably hopefully come out of this experience feeling invested in these people. And I don't know if I quite got there. Um, I'm still wrestling with that a little bit with where I'm at now. This movie doesn't feel as much like a judgment, uh, like, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of these people, as much as it feels like an attempt at understanding, um, if not understanding this web of people in particular, then at least like adding a layer of understanding to what any, uh, experience of companionship or love anywhere could potentially entail, you know, this, you know, this is just one of those stories, uh, in the naked city. I don't know why I pulled that out. Um, I can't quite put a finger on it, but I, I didn't come away feeling as like effectively heartbroken as I maybe would have wanted. And I didn't quite feel a kinship with the sort of, if there were wild and, and taming motifs, um, that were kind of occasionally put forth. Um, but I'm looking forward to finding out why that might not be the case, um, or why that may be the case rather, and why that might not be the correct perspective. But in, in any case, uh, this is clearly, Cody, uh, you don't always have to equivocate about your perspective. It's yours, man. It's valid. It's good. That's those are great points. Uh, in any case, this is clearly, I think, another example of like the the high floor we were talking about. That I'm hopeful we can continue to get from this subsection of Wong Kar Wai's filmography, which is sort of like the meaty chunk of it. Uh, it's very lovely. At times, it's really, really steamy. Um, and I mean this last bit as a compliment, as far as being a work that immediately precedes like the heavy hitters you know those entries in uh Wong Kar Wai's filmography that kind of come next this movie makes like perfect sense to me uh it makes sense that it exists in this way so that's great yeah that's a really good way to sum that up um I guess unsurprisingly I really really love this movie also um I was a little bit worried about this film series to be honest because I uh, just given our sensibilities as um fans of movies, I was a little bit afraid that Wong Kar Wai might have appealed to me more than it appealed to um, any of you, just because I'm I'm such a sucker for, like, hyper-romance, I guess, and, like, is melodrama. This, is this because I liked Bad Times at the El Royale? Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, got it. But uh, but I'm super glad to know that, like, we're, we're getting into it now, and, like, that it isn't just me in a weird way, right? Like, it's super validating to hear that that y'all like these movies, too, in a weird way. Um, yeah, just to, to sort of pick up where Cody left off, this movie does totally make sense. Um, and Jason, like you had said, I think that, though I don't totally agree with the idea that um, – as tears go by is like an um, anomaly in Wong Kar Wai's filmography. This movie feels like it's really like his mastery coming to the fore, like him understanding exactly who he is and what he's doing. Um, there, there's this sweeping hyper romanticization of all of the characters and these times and these places. And um, it's almost, uh, and this is sort of my own weird um, pet theory that I brought up a couple of times on this podcast, but it's almost like an Almodovar movie in the sense that like, I feel like there is an overarching thesis statement about what love is or about what something is. And this movie is about exploring what the sort of um, truth or tentative truth of that thesis suggests about um, how love affects people. In this case, um, it's it's a sort of an ironically cynical take, right? Where like um, love is sort of about control and exchanges of power and even sort of like um, memory and self-identification, um, which is something that Wong Kar Wai is such a master at talking about uh, the ways in which romance is actually all about 
how you want to be um, and who you want to be and how you want to be remembered and how you want to live your life. Um, this is a, a movie with a lot to say about all of those things. And I found that um, despite the hyper romanticization of all of these characters and what their um, motivations are, it like it made them more human and more distinct and more relatable rather than more um characterized or more like uh caricatures i mean and that really worked for me and it's it's amazing to see him pull it off i think so um yeah i i really enjoy this movie and i think it's a really like um valuable insight into wong kar wai's ongoing filmography so i'm super glad that we watched it when we did yeah i uh I think I was probably the most like down on as tears go by. I, I think I was coming to this movie expecting uh, it to be uh, better, not necessarily uh, because I had, I had heard too much specific to this film. I had seen some letterboxd reviews and whatnot by, by people that I generally kind of trust. Um, but I think specifically just because I know the, um, the kind of assumed quality uh, of Wong Kar Wai's later films. Um, I, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I think that this much to, or much like what Harry said, I think this feels like a much more competent filmmaker. Um, and not just because it's a, uh, a more mature feeling film. Um, I mean, it's not as violent as, as tears go by, for example. Um, not that that's necessarily, or not that that necessarily has something to do with, with the maturity of a film or whatnot. Um, but I think that even the way that this film handles violence, because violence is a, a, you know, a, a common theme in this film. Um, I think that it, it feels like a filmmaker who's so much more confident and uh, assured about what he's doing. Um, I think that there's a lot of themes in this film that I may not have loved in as, as tears go by, but as I watch this, it feels like they're starting to become more common uh, thematic points in Wong Kar Wai's uh, films, uh, you know, intimate meetings uh, in public places, for example, uh, specifically people being in the same situation, but reacting and feeling completely different about it. I think that that's uh, uh, something that it, it feels like he, he's really good at doing that. And I'm interested in seeing right. if that continues in later films. Um, Ooh, I think buddy. that I, <laughs> I, I think that I, I first became really convinced that this was like, I, I started feeling really confident, like, okay, I'm pretty sure this is a good movie. Um, very near the beginning. There, there's kind of a, a, a few scenes right in a row that really are incredibly effective. I think that the, the scene with Yuddy uh, kind of going every single day to buy a Coca-Cola and then kind of hit on, uh, you know, Maggie Chung's character, uh, Su Li Zen, who is, is working kind of behind the counter there. I think that that establishes these characters so well. I think the fact that Wong Kar Wai shows essentially the same scene happening three or four times in a row with just small, different contextual changes, but he changes the, the camera and he changes the perspective each time he does it. So it feels like things are progressing despite the fact that the same thing is happening over and over again. I think that's really good. Um, the scene with uh, Suli Zen and Yuddy, I think was kind of the second scene that like the minute it happened, um, the minute that they're lying on the bed together and they are facing the camera. And so we are able to see their facial expressions as it's they talk. It's an amazing framing, right? And, and they, they, they both feel completely different things about the situation, but because of the way that they're facing, they're unable to see each other in that moment. So an, an intimate setting is, is, is like instantly turned to something that is distinctly unintimate. That is like good shit, right? Um, 
I think this film also ends strong. There's maybe a minute or two in the middle where meanders just like a touch. Um, you know, I don't think this is a perfect film, but I think it is very good. I think that the shortened runtime really helps it in comparison to As Tears Go By, which is about 30 minutes longer. Um, it just feels much more confident, even in the handling of its characters. I think that Wong Kar Wai, uh, uh, it seems like he's handling very morally gray and complex characters a lot better than he did in his last films. Um, so uh, I think if, if I had one kind of minor detraction, I don't think it's, it's not as humorous as As Tears Go By. Uh, I think that's probably intentional, but it feels like there's very little playful and colorful here outside of the cinematography and the environments. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I think on the whole, I was, uh, I really enjoyed this film. So, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about how like As Tears Go By, uh, leads to something like the breadcrumbs it's it's setting lead to something a little bit more you know sort of shakespearean tragedy style like that i know that it was considered like not a reinvention but like uh an aping or a subversion somewhat of the gangster uh movie tropes wherein you know two characters three characters are part of the same sort of sordid lifestyle and they're working their way out of it or they're not. And what's the tragedy there where this movie gets a little bit is a little bit less clear about that. Like it's very clear about what its characters are and then wanting them to wanting to see how they could can or, or don't want to change. Um, And what you're saying about how that first, like the shot, once they come together again, like it's, I I find the editing in this movie very, very interesting because it makes me sort of think about everything that happened in the previous three, like a single cut can make me think very differently about how the scene is playing. But um, that one shot you're talking or that one cut you're talking about from them, you know, from um, from him buying a Coke to them laying in bed just implies that they are not together, that they're, you know, like maybe a whole scene where they're walking together or being together has, has occurred. Um, It feeds into that whole notion to me of like, what is what is the movie what is the the lens of the film doing to change what these characters like to change where these characters are in the story not just following them every second of it it feels a little bit like it's trying to throw me at times and it's like it's like when a roller coaster takes a sudden turn and you have to grab tighter on the bar even though that's not going to help i feel like i needed to do like it engaged me a little bit more when it was doing those things so i'm interested to see to know if like if that same feeling occurred to anybody else or if that's intentional or if that's something that I'm reading into it that might be way left of center. Yeah. Uh, I think that even the, even like the sound design of that scene, it, kind of how it ties into the camera work is like, it feels very intentional in that manner. Where like, especially the first time that that, that scene plays where Yuddy is for the very first time uh, meeting Su Li Zen uh, he is buying a Coke. He is being extremely, uh, like, confrontationally, uh, you know, kind of hitting on her and whatnot. Um, you know, the, the camera is so close to him that it kind of takes us into his view of what he's doing, right? He is getting, he is purposefully uh, kind of violating this woman's physical space in order to come off uh, as this kind of attractive bad boy. Um, that is his kind of tactic on how he approaches women often. Um, and then the very next time that happens, uh, it's like the camera's completely pulled away because we're seeing it from her perspective um like before he shows up right and and if you think of like the sound design like every single thing is so loud in that scene because it's very purposely yeah it's like there's like these empty hallways right it's like this big public space where you would assume uh you know during the day lots of people would be or maybe at certain you know when there's like 
games or whatnot, there would be a lot of people there. But we're hearing these like extremely empty like hallways. There's, it's like, such a liminal space, way. right? It's like yeah. it's like where the fuck are they? This like isn't a place that exists in reality. It's like some kind of weird like psycho space, right? He, he doesn't care. Wong Kar Wai does not care about like the logical uh, exactly like, facts of the scene. I think that this, ha- you know, it happens again with like the, the train scene, which I, we don't have to cut right to the end, but like Wong Kar Wai here is like, he does not care about the logical constraints of what is happening. He is so uh, focused on how to convey interiority uh, by camera work and by sound design and whatnot that like, at a certain point, it's like, yeah, should there be more people here? Can you like logically make up an excuse for it? Sure, you can, but that, like, that's not what's important. Like, what's important is how these characters are feeling. Well, and, and the whole movie's like that, right? And like, this is something that recurs with Onkar Wai. So you said a lot of really great stuff that I'm gonna try to tackle um, a little bit. But um, first of all, like, like Onkar Wai can get like almost Lynchian with the way that he designs spaces, which is. I know it's kind of a weird comparison, right? But like this whole movie feels like a dreamscape, right? Like the the geography that uh, Cody alluded to is so vague and the timeline is so vague, even though um, we're also supposed to be hyper aware of moments, right? Particularly moments in time. Um, the Jason, the framing that you discussed where uh, the camera cuts like straight into scenes, it, it's so thematically resonant um, mechanically with the idea of this movie because we're also trained to pay attention to passing moments, right? Like that is um, Yuri's go-to. That is something that ends up affecting uh, Su Li Zen so much. And it's something that we're supposed to be affected by too. And so the, the film itself is doing that to us. And it's making us hyper aware of moments and um, sort of like waving its hand about space in order to make the the moment to moment emotional territory that we're exploring foregrounded as opposed to the literal right and that that's such an effective filmmaking technique in my mind and it's so appropriate for Wong Kar Wai's subject matter when he's making these things that are hyper uh, romantic and hyper about the emotional interiority and spaces that Aaron, you were discussing. Um, I also, uh, and we can come back to this, but you said something about how um, Yuddy is so domineering in his approach. And that is super important to me, to this movie. The fact that he's like a terrible, abusive, emotional um, colonist is really important here. And um, the fact that that is itself he is such an unsympathetic character in my mind that he makes for a really interesting subject for um, Wong Kar Wai's sympathetic camera. And the camera continues to be so sympathetic the way that it was in As Tears Go By, where like the, the camera wants you to understand and relate to this character, despite the fact that he is an asshole, right? And like, not just an asshole, but like a person who ultimately has made his life about emotionally manipulating vulnerable women, which is like, like this dude is, is a creep, right? Like a capital C creep. The movie is still interested in exploring why. And I think it gets somewhere really interesting with that. And I don't think it could do that without the filmic techniques that you guys just discussed, which makes it really interesting and really like sophisticated filmmaking, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think y'all characterize that pretty well. I only wanted to, um, mention something that Harry, you, you painted pretty well. And that's, you know, we're talking about the strength of the, 
like the spaces that are created in this movie um, and uh, specifically how the editing plays into that and like the strength of that opening sequence with um, Yuri and Suli Zen, how that carries forth. It, it's that thing that we br- bring up uh, on, on this every so often, like how movies train us to watch certain scenes and interpret certain images. The fact that like ar- around the time that I noticed that like whenever I saw a clock, I was thinking of Yuri and thinking like, yeah, dude, that that son of a gun is making me thinking about him, that asshole. And like, as soon as that clicked for me, Su Li Zen says as much um, to um, to Andy Lau's uh, officer, Andy Lau, um, T-Day, Tide, whatever his name is. Um, and it, it, it's this weird sort of like Yuri is within Su Li Zen creating a sort of dependence right like as long as she is cognizant of like time and space and the like the mechanisms and constructs of time that define our reality she uh, reality she will always be thinking of him even if he like posits that oh it's just for this one minute like we'll be each other's but like it's it's never just that right like it's i i i think officer andy maybe describes it as an addiction he maybe doesn't use that term specifically but that's kind of what it feels like right like that's what's being that, that's what's festering it and, and that's what's so painful yeah aaron described it really well when he said that it's it's a um a taming metaphor right like this movie's called days of being wild he breaks women like literally he makes them emotionally dependent on him for self-definition um and he uses time and moments to do it and it's it's so creepy right like i think that that it's really interesting the way that aaron described what he first does with that weird pickup line that he uses where he makes her remember a moment and then that moment becomes many moments and then an hour and then more um because it's it's like a literal colonization metaphor he is taking more and more pieces of her and um like you had said cody the way that that the movie trains you and the way Wong Kar Wai trains you as he did in um, as tears go by where I talked about how so much of particularly the first act of that movie is about um, training you to become sympathetic with the lifestyle that those characters are leading and why it's attractive. Um, This movie is training you to see what makes Yuddy irresistible, which is that he is giving meaning to time, right? He is giving meaning to you and your inhabitants within time, and he builds a dependence, and he builds that dependence so that he can feel more free than those people, right? Because he himself feels entrapped because of his terrible relationship with his um, abusive stepmother or uh, adoptive mother, and he is sort of emotionally striking back and getting back at her uh, by establishing these power dynamics where he is going to colonize and tame other people's lives um, in order to feel like he is more free than they are uh, and sort of the master of his own um, life and experiences. And he does it through, through the sort of like romantic moments. And so it's so interesting that already like Wong Kar Wai, it's it's almost an ironic takeaway for Wong Kar Wai, right? Because Wong Kar Wai is so interested in romance and in what romance means and, and how it's about self-definition and about wanting to live as the most sort of um, genuine 
expression of yourself if only for a moment but in this movie already his second movie he is also um critical of that notion and he's exploring how it can be used against you how it can be used to foster addictions and in our independence um and so it's really interesting that he's already so thoughtful about it right and we'll we'll see how that uh recurs both in this movie and later Definitely. I think that's a really great way to describe what Yeti's character is and, and like the purpose he serves, moreover. Uh, and it reminds me of near the end of the movie, I guess we'll jump around and I'm sure I'll cite this again, but near the end of the movie after, or I guess it's, it's before he's, it's before Yeti has been shot, but the cop turned sailor uh, once they're in the Philippines and they're on the train. Um, he starts to talk to the sailor. Yeti starts to talk to the sailor about his, uh, I, I used to think there was a bird or I heard about this bird once and so it cuts good, him off. It, it, like that, that moment is, and I keep just describing things as microcosms on this podcast, but it kind of is for like Yeti finally, like even being, uh, uh, you know, attacked in a bar in the Philippines didn't, didn't wake him up to what he's like, didn't make him have any ounce of self-awareness or right. real self-awareness but once he's shot on the train or i guess once he's on the train he is is confronted by uh, the sailor who actually does recognize him and he reveals he recognizes him but in this like once yeti brings up the the bird that apparently has no legs and can't land more than once in its life it'll die etc cetera, etc cetera. um he says and i wrote this down because i felt like i'm so glad you did i was gonna say it if you didn't it's a really, really strong passage. He says, maybe you can fool girls with that story. You think you're some kind of bird. Which part of you? You're just the drunk I picked out of the garbage in Chinatown. If you could fly, you wouldn't have to be here. And that's, I don't know if it was intended to be, but that was like the boom. Finally, Yuddy is confronted with himself. He's confronted oh, with yeah. with what he, like what his whole, uh, like the fact that like Harry was just saying, like the way that he's been treating people and using their dependence to feel freer in his own life. Um, and he like the, the, I think it's Yeti's voiceover in the end says like, I realized that bird was dead. Like he has dead, no from, wings. dead from the start. Yep. Exactly. Like it's, it's not, it's not a life to live. It's not a way to be, it's not a, like a, an existence to, to lead because it has, it has like, not only does it have the roots that like he thinks he doesn't have, he believes, or like, it's not, it's not as freeing as he, as he thinks it is. And, and thinking about romance and love in the, the terms of power and control, than he has been thinking of them precludes true love, right? Like he can't be in love with people. He's incapable of expressing that truly, mm -hmm. which means he's incapable of giving meaning to his own life because as he as he strived to um, impose meaning on other people, he was all about freeing himself from that. And in the process, he's he's made a life that means nothing, right? Right, right. Um, and I guess I guess I'm just going to attack it as long as nobody else's hand up. Is, uh, but um, the the sailor slash cop becomes sort of a bigger part of the story toward the end. Uh, but he's only really introduced midway through when he interacts with Lai Chen and they go on walks together and it's not explicitly romantic and they never really consummate that. They never really come together in that way, but it's seen over time lapses that they are getting closer, that they're getting to know each other a little bit. Um, and their like involvement, their dependence on one another is pretty small. And then, you know, they, they go apart. His mother dies in a, in a VO like time lapse. It's revealed that his mother dies uh, and that he becomes a sailor as he always wanted to. He wants to, you know, 
see the world. He wants to wander, I think is what he says. Um, yeah, that that specific monologue, sorry to interrupt you. It reminded oh, no. me so much of uh, his motorbike, Her Island, where he was oh, yeah. like, and then my mother died, and then I became a sailor. There was something about that cadence that was like so the last monologue in his motorbike, Her Island. And like also in general, obviously, this movie reminded me a lot of that movie, right? In terms of like its uh, intersection of romance and self-identification slash self-determination and how interlinked those are. It's funny you say that because I, I was going to say that uh, Officer Andy's <laughs> Officer Andy's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> t- t- I mean, you know, I'm going to keep calling him Officer Andy. Fuck it. Uh, Officer Andy's relationship with uh, Su Li Zhen reminded me of uh, the relationship uh, between the two kind of uh, younger, um, I don't know, like twenty somethings in uh, Ozu's Good Morning. We're like, oh wow! It's like, oh okay, they, okay. They ne- you never fully see them like, like you're like yearning for them. Like, come on, guys, you guys are perfect for each other, but you never actually see them like get together. It feels like, oh man, that, that last movie with the train, yeah, the shot with the train. That like, last it's like shot, a- it's like one of the great romances of of cinema history, right? <laughs> Or the like, almost romances of uh, yeah. history, where it's like the it in that something about that train in Good Morning is like so similar to what Wong Kar Wai would have done with that, right? Where it's like it kind of is thematically the same thing as like the ringing, uh, you know, telephone box uh, that kind of uh, marks the one of the endings of this film. Anyway, sorry to cut in there. Yeah, no, uh, it, it's all feeding into the same point. I, I wanna I wanted to talk about how. Uh, Harry specifically pulled up um, Yeti building dependence through other people or in other people to, uh, to, you know, have a sense of freedom in his own life. He, you know, has, he's sort of, you know, the perpetual wanderer, the uh, flagrant, like, self-romanticizing um uh he's a don Juan character he's he's a don Juan character he he does not want to be tied down he thinks it'll die if he lands that kind of thing but i wanted to talk about how the how officer andy fits like how he fits into that uh play of yetis is it like is he purely foiled does he just like does yetis thing not work on him is he not close enough to the character in order for it to matter because they don't really interact until later in the movie or sorry almost the end of the movie right where they meet up in the philippines and it's totally by chance apparently but obviously he's like pretty important by the end and it's revealed that they've thought about each other more than more than it would be you would be led to be believe excuse me more than you would be led to believe and it made me think about like how these characters came together and clashed and didn't and you know how they're sympathetic they're obviously not like friends by the end but they know each other and i'm just wondering like it feels like in a movie by Wong Kar Wai just knowing each other is just like the surface level of having a deep romance right uh and i wanted to see <laughs> if anybody else had an idea of, of of how that what that relationship was supposed to look like and if i'm not seeing anything between those lines um i think they they certainly I think I think Officer Andy does kind of uh, act as a foil, right? Like he he is a character who so. is also defined by his relationship and and duties that he the duty that he feels to his mother, right? Um, I think that that's that feels very intentional. I think that the the main kind of point of this movie, I hate doing this, but like if I, if I think this movie is about something, I think it's about how we are all kind of dependent on the people that we interact with and have relationships with. And that having a life that is, that is kind of divorced or detached from other people that, that we interact with is, is damaging uh, not just to ourselves, but to those other people as well. I think that the, that, that is kind of the message that, that uh, uh, officer Andy is like 
meant to pour or meant to show uh, Yeti. I think that um, kind of tie it back to a point that I made earlier about like characters experiencing uh, a situation in different ways and like knowing something, but reacting to it in a different way. I think that that is kind of the point of that character and that the police officer, the sailor knows uh, Su Li Zhen just as Yudi does, right? Like Yudi obviously has a more intimate relationship with her um, maybe for a longer period of time. Um, But he is aware of the, the kind of factual events of the relationship that Yudi had with her. Um, Yudi is also aware of those events, right? But, but they react to it completely differently. So it is in the, in the same way that like two characters lying in a bed and facing the same direction can both feel and react and not know about the other person's feelings. I think that Andy, I keep saying by the fucking actor's name, but like the police officer is meant to, uh, kind of show the complete other side of that coin, right? Is This is what happens when you treat somebody this way uh, if you are able to step outside of just your own feelings and see the world as other people see it. I, I think um, Aaron focusing on like the two of them as foils is like the both the easiest and the most kind of correct way to, to see them. I think that covers most of it. The fact that Yudi is somebody who <laughs> for all intents and purposes does not care about working or putting forth like that sort of effort with regards to like labor and earning a living and the fact that he cares very little for or, i mean it's a complicated relationship with him and the mother figure in his life and like compare that to officer andy who operates on a sort of binary of like if i'm not going to be a cop i'm going to become a sailor question mark um i guess that makes sense and he loves his mother and so like by the time the Wong Kar Wai sort of like ecosystem brings these two together like it's a necessary interaction to see right because the things that have been building up each character up to this point we need to see them come to a head and realize very quickly it's like mm, actually like we are at odds in in many ways and that sort of i i guess like that's building it up that sort of Wong Kar Wai ecosystem just pulling back the term that I just used to characterize it I guess um and also the sort of uh thing that Officer Andy alludes to where it's because I thought they shared screen time at at one point maybe it was just like a passing glance and they didn't really do and the the bottom of the the bottom of Yeti's apartment uh the Officer Andy goes and says hey there's a there's a woman downstairs who wants to see you Yes. Yep. Thank you. And right. I, w- I was thinking of that point and it was soon after where officer Andy goes like, Hey, did like, haven't we met before? And that sort of idea of like not being able, like recognition versus not recognizing people you've been with, like passages of time transforming you uh, into something unrecognizable builds up the mythology of this, like the beginnings of this Wong Kar Wai trilogy verse um, in a way that is like really fascinating. And uh, like, that's such a sweet piece of, of world building that doesn't really have anything to do with the conversation we were just having, but like, I, that's such a, a crucial, like undersung piece. I think that I particularly enjoyed. Um, I actually think it does because when they both say that they don't recognize one another because their memory isn't very good, I believe, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I believe they're both lying, right? Isn't that the case? I mean, we know that it's the case for Officer Andy later on. Right, right. I, I right. Not... Hmm, interesting. Sorry. I, I, I think I disagree with that, but continue because I'm kind of interested and where that would go. Well, we know it. We know it is for officer Andy, right? Because he says he recognized, maybe he didn't recognize think, him at the time. I hmm. think he only begins to understand who sure. he is when Yuddy does the, says the quotation of the bird that he had heard from. Yeah. Um, okay. That makes sense. I, I well, but, but anyway, I mean, maybe, maybe like we don't have to, we don't have to. No, it's, you know, it's cool. 
Um, I'm just going to say, yeah, like maybe there's something to be said for the fact that like Officer Andy found him when he was drunk, passed out in a storm drain. So like maybe he does not recognize him until sure. he gets him back to his apartment or something. I, I, I don't know if that's so important as like the fact that they end up revealing that they do remember each other, you know, even if it was just a few minutes that they did see each other that one time. Well, the the point is that it's a power dynamic, right? Like, like what you remember uh, is what has power over you. Um, like Yuddy's whole thing is I remember what should be remembered. He wants to like, he wants to show women that he doesn't even remember them because that is how he maintains power over them. Um, he does that because he himself feels forgotten by his birth mother, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, so it's it's very important for Yuddy to meet Officer Andy. I'm doing it now too, um, because Andy can be his equal in a way that women can't excuse me categorically can't because he's such a fucking misogynist. Um, and so to me, and this is sort of restating what Aaron said, but like to me, Andy is is so important as a foil because he he demonstrates to both the camera and to Yuddy himself like what a person with a soul looks like like what a person who actually can have a real relationship with another human being looks like and how that makes a life that's actually worth living as opposed to what Yuddy has. Right. Like Aaron, you had said really um, astutely that, um, that he, that officer Andy has a similar relationship to Sue Lee Zen. I would say that he ends up learning more about her, right? Because he actually listens to what she has to say. And in the, in the process, he learns that she has her own traumas and her own uh, frustrations and he can help her heal those. Whereas like Yuddy exploits those traumas without knowing what they are. And in the process exacerbates them for both himself and for her. So like it's, it's, you're right. It's two opposite sides of the same coin where it's like, like Andy can relate to people's traumas and in doing so heal them by forming connections. Uh, Yuddy exploits them and in the process worsens them and cheapens everyone's lives. Right. And that is sort of like the, the, like you had said, the big capital P point is that like, that is what relationships have the potential to do on either side is they can be destructive or healing in this way, but they're always destructive or healing in equal measure for both parties. Um, which is why it's so interesting and so appropriate that like Yuddy is made sympathetic, but at the same time, the destruction that his actions, um, lead to is portrayed equally sympathetic like it the pain is is everywhere here right and um cody you had said that it wasn't a judgmental movie i think that's a pretty astute take just because it it like demonstrates all of it in equal measure right like without going to judgment which is another way in in which this is sort of almodovar-esque is that it's just interested in exploring where all the pain comes from right and it's like yes yuddy did these things because of this. And we're going to depict that we're also going to depict what the consequences of his own inadequacies are doing. Um, and I, I think that's how it does it. And that's how it uses officer Andy. Yeah. I, I think that even, I mean, I, I brought up earlier that he, you know, officer Andy sounds like the, like the, the humorous uh, kind of wacky police officer character from like a 19, like fifties, like TV show. You know what I mean? Like, like green acre right. ass fucking like, there's a, there's a tree. Character. There's a cat caught in the tree. Call officer Andy. And then he fails to get the cat. Well, I mean, it's literally twin peaks, right? There's literally an officer Andy. In yes. twin peaks, and yeah. he is that character. Yes, he is that character. Um, no, I, I think that it's, you know, even, uh, apart from the fact that, that, that they are both characters, uh, defined, uh, by their, their 
uh, you know, kind of parentage. Um, I think that that he is he is also similar to Yuddy and that I think that is his kind of ultimate profession as a sailor is is very uh, kind of metaphorical, right? And that he is somebody who also wants to kind of uh, go through life in this manner. He wants to let the you know tides, so to speak, take him uh, wherever they may. And he's the thing is that he's okay with that, right? Like characters uh, very intentionally ask him like, hey, are you okay being alone, uh, kind of just patrolling right. like a police officer? Are you okay just being a sailor and going to whichever port uh, the ship takes you to? And he says that he is, and that's because he is a, he is a kind of self-assured character. Like he is someone who has genuine like empathy and understanding and cares about other people, no matter who that other person is. And, and if you live that way, you know, you are much more comfortable. This kind of, uh, kind of aimless journey becomes, it becomes a journey instead of this kind of aimless search that Yuddy is defined by. Yuddy is unable to see other people for who they are or treat them like human beings. And thus that the kind of uh, travel that he's doing will always be the search with ever, without any sort of like in destination. Like we get the yeah. feeling that even if he would have actually met his mother at the end, he would have been just as unhappy, if not more unhappy uh, by that revelation. Right. Like I don't, right. I don't, the unhappiness was the point all along. Yeah. Um, and, and I did kind of, I said this kind of uh, uh, very shortly earlier, but I, I do think the character is kind of a take on Don Juan. Like I don't, I guess I don't know that for sure. Or maybe some sort of, uh, other, you know, kind of uh, Asian kind of character who's maybe a little similar, but um, the character of Don Juan is like so interesting because he's this character who, uh, who, who basically views what everybody else views as like these kind of transactional exchanges and is unable to be uh, defined by this kind of larger soul searching, right? Where the, I think Yuddy is kind of the anti Don Juan. Don Juan is, is perfectly happy going around sleeping with women and he, he just does that. He just, that's what he does. And he's perfectly happy doing that. The thing about Yeti is that there is this like very deep longing inside of him, but it's only in like the last like 20 minutes of this movie that we really see the extent uh, to which he is like, his soul is, is very hurt. I think at the beginning, I kind of read his character as like completely unemotional or completely like unreacting. Um, I think the truth is that he is like hyper emotional, but he's oh, pretty much so. to show it. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I mean, he, he's torturing people, right? Like his, like the difference between Don Juan is like Don Juan is happy. Like he, like Yudi wants to inflict pain. Like he is hurting these women. That is the point of his relationship with it's, them. It's like a very. I'm I'm sure this industry existed back then, but it's like it it totally is like the like the red pill like pickup artist bullshit that like yes. Got very popular online in like the past. He's, like, he's a fuck boy. Yeah, he's and and we haven't talked about this character yet, but like uh, Jackie Chung's character Zeb is like he. I, I think that there he's is protege. there is such a a like sad note to the ending of this movie where this this movie could end anywhere, but the fact that it ends on a shot of Zeb like he's finally got the suit, like he's finally got the watch, like he's he's combing his hair in the mirror, just like it's his, fucking brutal, like his man. Did. It's like such like a brutal spot to end the movie because we would expect it to end with, with Su Li Zen or with Yuddy or mm-hmm, even mm-hmm. with Officer Andy. But like the fact that it ends with that character is like so telling on like what Wong Kar Wai wants to say about how this kind of perpetuates itself. Right. Uh, quick thing. I just want to say um, he do, Yuddy does not realize he's he's not like he, he carries on with this Don Juan lifestyle. Um until somebody literally clips his wings just had to get that phrase in there uh and two that is in fact not 
Jackie Chen at the end of the film. Um, that is Tony Leung Hold on, uh, playing a, a wholly another character. And if it's okay, uh, I don't know if anybody else has any other thoughts, but we should probably pivot to what the end of this movie actually is because there's a really history or excuse me, interesting Wait. history. Yeah. Wait, what? Uh, Jason, go for it, guys. Okay, well, we'll pivot there. Th- that is in factually, in, in fact, in factually, oh, Tony Lung Chu Wai, another completely separate actor, uh, Chinese actor, um, as a character oh, called The Gambler, uh, who is in fact divorced from the rest of this story in the international cut, which we've seen. Uh, he is not related whatsoever to the story. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was apparently, apparently that scene and the best explanation anybody's come up with was, uh, that Wong Kar Wai insinuated that it was sort of supposed to be a quick teaser lead in for a sequel to this film. But of course it's sort of bombed at the box office. In fact, there was a parody of this film made called days of being dumb, which I've added to my letterbox list that made more money than this film did at the box office in Hong Kong in 1998. One, I think I want to say it came out. Um, but all anyway, of this sucks ass, and I'm I sorry know, for being a racist. Damn, I, I just went, I just went on like a fucking rant. I, here's, the here's the thing. I, I, fucking- I know. I also thought that it was, so I had to make sure, and I was not made sure. But um, this is sort of where I'll get into the differences in the international and uh, and apparently sort of an apocryphal slash more localized version of the movie, uh, in which there is, um like this character is introduced in the opening credits with an earlier cut of that same scene where he's, you know, brushing his fingernails and combing his hair and such. Um, let me see if I can pull back up this piece. Uh, there is intercut into the opening credits is a section from the final scene of this film in which you see the, the gambler, um, sort of prepping for his night out. Uh, and over that image, there's a male voice, which the writer here could not identify. And I don't know where this version of the film exists. And I don't know if I'd be able to identify because it's all going to be in Cantonese anyway. But, um, I saw him one more time. The voice says he had just returned from the Philippines. He was much thinner than before. I asked him what happened to him. He replied that he just recovered from his sickness. He didn't want to chat anyway. So I asked him what his sickness was afterwards. We didn't see each other anymore. And then Boom. You get the rest of the movie as, uh, excuse me, days of being wild as you sort of expected with like some different shots here that emphasize different things in different places. But just to add some clarity, that is in fact not Jackie Chung at the end of this movie. It is not carrying through that theme that strongly. I don't know if there exists a cut where it does, but I think we're supposed to read into the end of Jackie Chung's character's story as yes, he is sort of heading down the same path that Yuddy did. I, which is which is why I immediately assume that's what it was. Because like yeah, that is yeah. where his character was going, right? Um and is, we, we haven't nuts. talked about um yeah. Uh we haven't talked about Mimi slash Lulu slash uh oh, we have, young, Jesus. Uh, Fu Ying at all. But she's also a really interesting and important part of this movie that we maybe don't have time to touch on anymore, right? Um but but her relationship with um with Zeb sort of like it it creates like a B plot slash um it it plays out the power dynamic that um that Yuddy had with women sort of like uh on another tier, right? Where Yuddy exploits um Liang Fung Ying and without really like intending to, um, Zeb ends up having that sort of similar relationship with her where he chases her the way that she's chasing Yuddy. Um in the end, like Mimi slash Lulu learns that she is sort of like more, at least this was my takeaway. Maybe this is a wild thing to bring up right at the end, but like that she is more like Yuddy than she thought in that, like by trying to tame him and by trying to be the one that he likes the most, she doesn't really like love him. 
or have a real relationship with him. Um, and that is frustrating to her. Right. And so she ends up sort of becoming like a weird, um, female yuddy in a sense where she ends up going to the Philippines at the end of the movie, um, maybe free and maybe perpetuating the, the sort of yuddy phenomenon. Whereas like, I thought that, uh, that what happens to Zeb is what Aaron described where he becomes the new, the like yuddy 2.0. I kind of thought that that was the whole idea of like, this is what being without love does to somebody is it perpetuates the like pain that you inflict on other people. And that becomes important. And that's how, that's how like this, this power dynamic and this evil perpetuates itself. Um, but uh, all of that yeah. is complicated now, right? <laughs> <laughs> we've we've been owned, unfortunately, by uh, the facts of this film. Uh, yeah, I think you're all like on the right page regarding Zeb. I think he's abs- like that's absolutely what we're meant to take from him and how he's put into the story. But I just wanted to clarify because it it threw me for a fucking loop, knowing that that is not how the movie actually ends. It, are you saying that they did like a they did like a like Marvel movie like post credit sequence? Yeah, Nick Cage is going to show up at the end and recruit uh, Zeb into the Avengers. Yeah, like oh boy. I need uh, speaking, yeah. speaking of Lynchian, uh, another real big Lynch uh, move on Wong Kar Wai's part to just put another fucking movie in the end of his movie. <laughs> I, I love it. Apparently, like I said, there was a sequel planned, didn't happen, but then, of course, it continued in with uh, In the Mood for Love in 2046. Um, yeah, I, just a bizarre way that this movie could have ended. I, I do want to talk about Lulu a little bit. I don't know Please. how to. I really don't know. <laughs> I guess I've, I'm, I'm the problem here bringing it up and then not. But she is like, she is the constant in uh, next to, I guess, his auntie and the mother he doesn't know. She is kind of the constant in Yeti's, in Yeti's life against his own wishes, like for that first couple of scenes where they're seen, you know, romantically embracing and, you know, having their fling. Uh, and then everything after that is like total resentment. He wants to flee as he's fleed so many times before, and he wants her to get out of his hair. Um, so like, is she just that? Is she just another extension of, or like victim of his, uh, flightiness of his, of his like wielding dependency against the people who are dependent on him sort of thing? I mean, in part, right? But he is also, um, or she, excuse me, is is also sort of like she is like a foil to Sue Lizen the way that um, Tide is is a um, foil to Yuddy, but almost in the inverse, right? Where like, like uh, Sue Lizen was like looking for something real, right? And she she was like um, really looking for someone to love her and to to love, um, so that she could be less lonely um i think that the movie sort of implies that that's not necessarily what mimi slash lulu is looking for um and that she is in fact kind of playing the game in a similar way that um that uh tied are not tied excuse me that uh yuddy is and that they're kind of like well suited for one another in that way right like their chemistry and their back and forth and their playfulness with one another is all sort of like part and parcel with that um ultimately she is still burned because she is still um more human than yuddy is right but like she has to reconcile with the fact that like her relationship with with yuddy was not necessarily real um on either of their accounts um even if she thought it was and she has some some soul searching to do right and um like maybe ultimately she's going to be able to do that because she has someone who really loves her. Whereas Yuddy is, is doomed in that way. Yeah. I, I don't know. I definitely, I definitely read, um, 
I definitely read Zeb's affection is is kind of purely not yes. any more noble necessarily than Yuddy's. I, I think that uh, to to me, um, her character kind of was the the anti Su Li Zhen, right? Like the yeah, I think so too. Maggie Chung's character, where um, I think at the end of the film, where where where, where Su Li Zhen is like able to get over as much as you can uh, her relationship with Yuddy. I think that. Um, that she's instead defined by it, right? We're like, right, because she doesn't have anything else. That's a really good way to put that. Yeah, it's a pretty brutal thing to like travel to a different country, like before there were cell phones. Well, not before there were cell phones, but like before most people had cell phones and ways of communication to like go to a hotel and be like, hey, have you seen this guy who may have come through here? Like it, it's it's pretty brutal. I think like it's it's kind. Of, yeah, it's just a really sad ending for that character, I think. Well, I, especially because, like, I thought fucking Zeb was going to go get her. Like, I thought he was doing the thing. Nah. Because, like, his, his whole thing was that he was trying to become Yuddy the whole movie. I thought that the end of this movie was him becoming Yuddy, but I, then it wasn't. We, we both thought that. We have been uh, objectively proven incorrect. Uh, I think that, that now I would read Zeb's character as, as uh, somebody who understands that he will never be Yuddy. Uh, which is also similarly it's, depressing. Like not, it's like better for him. Yuddy. Yeah, it is. But I, I think that that you know he he's still not necessarily a great guy, right? Um, no, because he still bought into the power dynamic, right? The yeah, only difference was that he was to be yeti. Yeah, yeah. I think the the conclusion of Zeb's arc is still tragic in a different sense, right? Because he the word protege uh had has been correctly thrown around and like it it seems you know getting into like the last act of the movie that zeb is set up to take on the mantle of being the new yuddy um uh, he's gifted this car he's you know set to you know he he wants to be with lulu he realizes very quickly that he is not fit to drive that car he is not fit to like be with lulu um and he I, I think about the like the exchange he has with like their final scene together where she leaves to go to the Philippines and Zeb is just like, look, here's the money I got from selling uh, Yeti's car. I like should not be driving this. I'm not fit to wield this like uh, uh, this Playboy mobile. Um, and he he kind of has like a like if you don't find what you're what you're looking for like come back and we'll be together which reads to me as like if things go if things go down in that way where she like she comes back and like he's there and still waiting then maybe they will each be in a place where they could be with each other but in a way that is like better for the both of them and not in like a, a yuddy esque relationship that both Zeb and Lulu are familiar with in that way, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It kind of a, a mm -hmm. weird, but like abrupt conclusion for that character, but like still, still a pretty sad one. I, I, Jackie Chung uh, gets tasked with some, some kind of bonkers characters. Yeah, He's gotten owned in two of these films so far. Yeah. Yeah. Similar characters too. Very. You would hope that they're, you know, that time and space as Wong Kar Wai is so obsessed with portraying in such like viscerally emotional ways would have affected both of them enough to like change their characters at some core level, right. To give them some of that self-awareness that, that Yeti never was able to afford himself. But again, left a little open. Yeah. But I mean, there, there is the possibility, right? I mean, 
Like Lulu has that sort of come to Jesus moment where at least she sort of recognizes that she is being a yuddy. Um, and even if she does commit to it, there's there's maybe some empowerment there. I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to make uh, excuses for her. Um, <laughs> Uh, we should also talk about, uh, real quick before we move on, uh, like Yuddy's redemptive moment, right? Where he, the last thing that he says to Tide is that if you ever see Suli Zen again, tell her, I don't remember, uh, that thing I did to her, the moment with the time. Um, that's really sort of like the only noble thing he does in this movie, right? Because like with his dying breath, he has like the ability to really twist the knife again and like, like tell this guy that like actually Suli's in you did mean something to him he does remember you and then she she might be broken for the rest of her days right because she might think that this man really loved her and really did die instead he says like no let her remember me as this terrible person that i was that way she can move on she can get over it as she herself said she did so there's like an interesting redemptive moment of self-awareness at the end for yuddy right it doesn't obviously excuse what he did but it, it's sort of an acknowledgement of what he did at least harry i gotta say i think i read that uh the opposite interesting power. how I, did you read it well yeti's whole thing is that he hit the power that he has over people is that he makes an impression on them but they do not mean anything to him right like the the right. ultimate fucking final move on his deathbed is to say like yeah you didn't actually mean anything to me you didn't remember me even though really she did right like she she i think we're supposed to go along with the idea that like she was the the final one that he loved the most at the end of his life right um i think that it's like the the opposite of a redemptive point in my mind that like his final act is to say like yeah you you didn't actually mean anything to me despite the fact that you did and like i meant something to you clearly i know that i did it's my whole game to like make you understand like that that i am something to you but like in the end like please do not tell her that that she had that effect on me i think that's like to me that's like the opposite of a redemptive moment that's interesting um i i had thought that he had seen that she was with tide by then and that therefore she had sort of moved on no, um, Tide, Tide says uh, very specifically that they were just friends I yeah think but like i don't know if he buys that because like come yeah. on it's a one car y movie yeah I don't know. But you're, I, right, you're right. That's that's interesting. Two different readings. Uh, Cody yeah. and Jason are both on setting. I appreciate that. Well, I, I just wanted to clarify. The points got muddied a little bit. You're talking about this character, Tide. Um, which character? Are we? Uh, officer. Officer. Off, officer. Andy. Officer. Andy. Okay. He sometimes goes by uh, Tide. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. He has um, many names. <laughs> that he does. Um, not enough, arguably. I, I think... Honestly, like my my reading of that was muddy too because I think it comes off initially as like a harsh thing to say. Um, Definitely, like tell like tell her that I didn't uh, remember her. I I think to give to give this movie its sort of like upswing in the final moments. Like I'm I'm inclined to side with what what Harry put forth. That's what I would like to believe he meant. Um, I'm like I'm I can see how it would be the way Aaron described it too. I guess like that, that is like a a wedge of this movie's ideology that I'm still like not a hundred percent on. Right. So I I guess like it's, it's like meta analysis. Right. But I just like, that is, it's like the more dramatic final scene. And it's like, it's like a completion of his arc 
in a way that that yeah. just being an asshole to his last isn't. But like both are appropriate for who he is. So maybe the fact that it's ambiguous is supposed to be kind of part of the point. I don't know. Can, can I uh, change the subject real quick? This is my last point. I wanted to hear Jason's take first, oh, but Jason, then you can. Yes. Sorry, Jason, did you have a take? Uh, I was just going to kind of lean toward what Harry said. I think that he was saying... Yeah, probably. I think I think I I think that's more what the movie puts there, right? Maybe it's ignorant of a whole lot of what comes before, or maybe the implications of the movie as it wraps up. But I think that it is Yuddy tells Officer Andy to tell uh, Lauchi that he's not that he doesn't remember. Um, (laughs) Why would you tell somebody that you don't? Why would you you don't remember something exactly? Like, hey, hey, you (laughs) know that moment? Breath, you're like, I was not owned. That is, that is his character is that he is unable to be. But isn't isn't that admission? Isn't that an admission itself that you're owned? That he does remember it. (laughs) Like when when I when I when I fuck up spelling in the Discord and somebody says that I'm like I didn't get owned. It's an acknowledgement that you've owned me. Yeah, and but I am please, now refusing the owning. Tell the the uh, judges from my fifth grade spelling bee that I ever spelled anything wrong. Don't don't tell them. Please what, tell what, them I kept what, spelling why correctly. Does, why would I even like? I haven't spoken to my fifth grade teacher in in ever. Like I, my mom was my fifth grade teacher. I haven't spoken to her in that context for years. In reality, that's the thing. He is unable to accept mm. that. Did Jason just say he hasn't talked to his mother in years? Yeah, Who? Huh? What's going well, on? <laughs> well, then I think we're nearing the end of our program. Uh, uh, before I yanked the mic out, I think Aaron was going to say something. Yeah, look, the, the ending of this movie is, uh, uh, you know, it's very subjective. It's open to interpretation. I would like to put forth something very objective that I will, uh, assuming nobody is annoyed at this, uh, we'll be doing for further Wong Kai Wai movies. Wait, 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 wait. Is this an Aaron's notey? No, uh, it's okay. like a thing I wanted to. I don't want to take. No. <gasps> Cody is the only one. Aaron's things. <laughs> I, don't say that. Uh, I would just like to note that the apartments uh, uh, we've seen in these movies, like the, the idea of these kind of intimate sp- uh, physical spaces that are defined by their physical space and how people react to them. That's something that seems to me as a as a uh, amateur uh, Wong Kar Wai uh, watcher, that seems like something that is becoming increasingly important in his films. And I would just like to say that the the quality of the apartments in Wong Kar Wai's films, based on uh, a data uh, set of two two data points, which is not much, uh, it seems like the apartments are generally getting nicer. And because of this, I would like to put forward the Aaron Grossman Wong Kar Wai filmed apartment quality index, wherein the apartment quality in each Wong Kar Wai film is measured in based on an objective objective analysis. Uh, Man, as, you don't know that this is actually going to be a really good bit. So it's a great bit. Well done. <laughs> as tears go by, okay, now again, this will be short because we only have two. As tears go by, Waz apartment is the main apartment in that film. That apartment fucking sucks. I think we can all say that we would not like to live there. Waz a slob. He doesn't even have any drinking glasses. His fucking cousin, who he is sleeping with, has to buy him new drinking glasses uh, because he breaks them during his violent outbursts. Uh, his bed is, is like a couch, like just a terrible spot to be in. I'm going to rate that unless other people disagree a two out of 10. That is a two uh, out of 10 apartment. Yeah. With, with, with the data points we have, I give that a two. Yeah. Uh, now, now days of being wild, this apartment, uh, Yuddy's apartment, I think despite the all manner of, of kind of, uh, uh, terrifying things that go on there as Yuddy is a kind of piece of shit person. Um, I do think it's actually a pretty chill pad. 
right? Like it, it's nicely like lit. Um, it seems like kind of a cool spot to hang out. The fact that uh, you, your, your best bud can climb up like a pipe on the outside and then hop into the window. That seems very cool to me. Expensive would, rent at $40 a month. Did you uh, catch that part? Well, yeah, but you know, that I, I, I think there is a, a point to be made that, that this should be kind of scaled based on the uh, affordableness of an apartment, right? Like uh, objectively, obviously a free apartment's the best apartment. Uh, and, uh, you know, in so true, you know, that would, but I, I would like to rate this a six out of 10. I think that is a six out of 10 apartment. Works for me. Okay. I, I assume. Okay. So I'm just future casting to the next few Wonka Wai films that we see. I assume that they have people of higher economic status and that they are mo- just based on the posters alone. People look better dressed. Are we going to ever find actually? A 10 that's going to be very interesting uh, to talk about. Okay, Jason. Jason, people people have for years speculated on whether the mythical uh, Aaron Grossman Wong Kar Wai film department quality index ten out of ten reading will be achieved. We don't know yet. You know, we can't. Uh, who who can say? Like, obviously, if we're okay. continuing trends here, the next one will be a, a ten out of ten mathematically. But you know, two data points. I don't know. We could go up. We could go down. I'm it's, comfortable uh, with this. So, right. so we got, so we got a two and a, a two and a six so far. Two and a six. Two and a All six. Right. Solid, solid. This was a good. This was a good bit. Good bit, Aaron. It's frustrating how well this will be as a bit going forward. I'm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Cody, I guess I forgot we're both long car Y stands, and like it turns out apartments are fucking very important in the like two best long car Y movies. I had to do something after messing up uh, Zeb's character arc, so I'm coming forward with the Aaron Grossman long car Y film department quality. Wait, you threw you threw that you threw that together in the last fifteen no, no, minutes? No, I, I okay, just making sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, good bits, good bits all around. But now it's time for the best bit, I think. The, you know, g- g- qu- questionably a bit. It's pretty sincere, but I, I do appreciate how we framed it. It's consistent, repeatable. It is what we call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, as always, for the warm introduction. Uh, it's an inevitability that we would at some point dive a bit deeper into the life and career of <gasps> Maggie Chung. Um, it feels like we've only just begun our Wong Kar Wai watch, Wong Kar watch, Wong Kar watch, Wong Kar watch, uh, we'll get something trending. Uh, and while that may be true, we have also already covered two of the three films that Maggie Chung will be in during this slate. Um, we're already over halfway done with that. Um, yeah. So while this program theme is young, we'll talk Maggie Chung in a segment we'll go ahead and call Chung Trivia. Is your knowledge laggy about our esteemed Maggie, or is a win for you today in the baggie? We'll have answers to these questions and more shortly. Can I can I clarify? Chung trivia. Go ahead. Can I clarify that Chung trivia is C H E U N G C H R I V I A? Uh, I will not be overseeing the Twitter account during this time, so do what Mm, you will. Interesting. Uh, This bit really shits on the Aaron Grossman Wong Kar Wai film uh, quality. (laughs) This is a lot better of a bit, Cody. When you you come at the king, you best not miss. I have a thing like once every eight months, and and Cody just shits on it with his great... You say you have a thing once every eight months, but you've been ringing the whole I moved to Chicago thing for like a year. That's true. It's the best city in the freaking world, baby. All right, let's get into some chunk trivia, Cody. 
Yeah. Well, if you've uh, if you've listened uh, to this podcast before, or if you've co-hosted it before, you can probably infer what this game is all about. We're going to highlight some areas of Maggie Chung's career in a gamey format, because uh, we're all about games here. Uh, gamies. Trivia. That's right, Cody. Apply here. Um, use your noodles, not your Googles. Um, I'll corral answers from you fine folks in the following order. Uh, first, Harry, then Jason, and finally, Aaron. And I believe with this specific permutation will have gotten to all possible orders throughout these uh nodi segment gamies um so uh, we all win today uh, no matter what as far as i'm concerned um w- but without further ado unless anyone has something they would like to uh, do we can get started let's kick it Ado. uh all right first and foremost it's our duty to shine a light on our previous episodes because we are obnoxious narcissists, and I'm of course referring to the Police Story series. Now we did uh, we did episodes on Police Stories one and two, and during this time, Maggie Chung was in the earlier stages of her career, though she was still quickly gaining notoriety and garnering many different roles. Um, how many credits? Uh, this, is, this is my question for you all. Uh, how many credits does Maggie Chung have to her name in the time between the release of Police Story one, which came out in 1985? And the release of Police Story 2, which came out in 1988. Uh, the closest guest to the correct answer will get a point. Um, and we're starting with Harry. Oh, four. Four. All right, Jason? I'm going to say nine. All right, and Aaron? Can I just... I, so I know that Hong Kong actors are incredibly prolific. I'm going to go... I'm going to go... Hey, sorry, Jason. I'm going to go ten. You butthole. You hate to see it. Uh, going by IMDb sorting of release dates, Maggie Chung has 19 credits between the Ooh, releases of Police oh Story my God. 1 and 2. Uh, specific release dates are obviously important to consider here, uh, especially in the year 1988 when she appeared in 12 different projects, some released uh, before Police Story 2 and some after. Uh, that see, year. this is just me being extremely ignorant about the way that Hong Kong filmmaking works relative to Aaron, I guess, because I was like, I know she was prolific during that time, but she's a big actress, and big actresses usually have about one project per year, and so yeah, I like... They're very selective. That way. Yikes. Uh, to contextualize just a little bit further, um, the last part of, of this part, as tears go by, the subject of our last episode came out between Police Story 1 and 2. Um, so like, and my understanding, and we probably talked about it, I mean, we recorded on Police Story 1 decades ago, um, but I, I think we maybe commented then on how that movie, like her being in that movie, kind of, it didn't like catapult her career necessarily, but it was like slowly climbing up a hill if we're just sticking with that. Yeah, uh, it's intrigue. that's back to back to back hits though. Goddamn. Yeah, Totally. Um, but moving along to number two, so Aaron, Aaron got the point that he was closest. Uh, moving along to number two, uh, which concerns a cross-section of Maggie Chung's accolades, that being the Hong Kong Film Awards. Uh, since 1982, these awards have gone about and have been generally considered as sort of the Hong Kong equivalent to our North American Academy Awards. They award performative and technical excellence in film, and Maggie Chung has uh, predictably been a routine nominee and winner. I'm going to list four of the films for which she has been nominated for Best Actress. And what I'll need from you is the number of times, again, out of four, that she won the Best Actress Award. And the films are as follows. Uh, As Tears Go By from 1988. Comrades, Almost a Love Story from 1996. uh, In the Mood for Love from 2000. And finally, Hero from 2002. Uh, So again, the question is, how many times out of four, specifically these four, did Maggie Chung win Best Actress at the Hong Kong Film Awards? Um, I'll say for this, only uh, an exactly correct guess will garner you a point. Uh, Harry? Oh, that's brutal. Also, I forgot she was in Hero. I need to rewatch that. That's rad. Um, 
I, I think I remember being pissed off about seeing this trivia point, so I want to say once. All right. Uh, once for here. Uh, Jason? Thrice. All right. And Aaron? My understanding is that Wong Kar Wai's films have generally kind of not, except for, like, I think the Grandmaster, not done, like, crazy well financially overseas. But so I'm trying to uh, I'm going to say that I think she did not. Although as 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 tears go by was like his biggest film. Uh, just a number. Twice, just twice. Twice. Okay. Twice. He yeah, said all that, I, and then he did the only obvious answer. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Four times uh, he was vamping and buying time while he looked it up in the background. Uh, the no, breakdown. All right, all right. The breakdown is as follows: uh, As tears for as tears go by, Maggie Chung did not win. For Comrades Almost a Love Story, Maggie Chung did win. For In the Mood for Love, she did win. And for Hero, Maggie Chung did not win Best Actress. So that puts her oh. two Best Actress trophies out of the four opportunities. Um, Comrades Almost a Love Story uh, has been one of my favorite quarantine finds. Um, that I want to see it so bad, Cody. Uh, I got the Blu-ray. Uh, but I'm you coming. made me- I think uh, I like, you, may need, you may need my special player for it. I can't remember. I'd have to check. I think I like objectively know the least about Maggie Chung out of everybody. I'll brag wow, when I'm done. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. What are you doing? Okay. Uh, well, uh, on to, there, there are five of these total, by the way. So, so plenty of time uh, for ketchup here or mustard. Um, but number three, continuing the trend of referencing other shit we did. For question three, I'm going to invoke the Rashomon rule, which is uh, that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So I ask you all, what percentage of Maggie Chung's films abide by the Rashomon rule and that they are equal in length to or shorter than Rashomon? Uh, And we'll say the closest guess to the correct answer. We'll get the point here. Um, So again, what percentage of Maggie Chung's films abide by the Rashomon rule? Harry? Uh, 25%. All right. Jason? I'm going to go 30%. I feel, I feel comfortable with that. Wow. Okay. And Aaron, uh, I think it's actually lower, but I think I have to go 31%. You fucking jackass. Worst, dude. All righty. Um, of the 91 film entries for Maggie Chung on letterboxd.com, 16 of them fulfill the Rashomon rule criteria for a percentage of 17.582. Let's go. Uh, repeating, of course, slouching into the victory. I, on the board, doesn't it, buddy? I do hate to see a king winning. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, so Harry gets the point there. Um, well, uh, well played all around. I love, oh man, you got to love the optimism that anybody's filmography will have, you know, even, even 30% of movies. 80 yeah. The world, the world is not just, it's not a good place. Uh, amen, brother. Um, number four here. Uh, we've gestured at various long-tenured collaborations uh, that Maggie Chung has had over the course of her career uh, throughout this pod, um, previous episodes, and this game. Uh, two frequent acting collaborators of hers were Jackie Chan and Tony Lung Chu Wai. How many films did Maggie Chung, Jackie Chan, and Tony Lung Chu Wai all, uh, all appear in together? Whoa. Uh, Wait, all, so all three of them? All three of them. Uh, for this, we'll say exact guesses get the point. Otherwise, the next closest guess gets it. Um, so, Harry, how many did all three appear in together? Shit, man. Um, I'll probably be, like, embarrassingly off. Um, I'm going to say uh, nine. Nine movies. 
nine. Jason? All right. So we know that her filmography is like 90 some, right? Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to say four. I'm not, I don't think it's that. I think this is like the stars aligning in Hercules. I think this is rare. All right. Aaron? Oh, I think it's between nine and four. Uh, I'm going to guess six. All righty. So I'm going to build up to this a little bit with, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> well, remarkably, God. Little help, remarkably little help from the site layout of IMDb. Shout out to, to y'all, I guess. Uh, and assuming my Microsoft Excel filtering is accurate, uh, which it is, I can offer the following information. First, Maggie Chung and Jackie Chan were in five films together. Maggie Chung and Tony oh. Lung Chuai were in seven films together. And finally, <sighs> the three of them were collectively in exactly zero films together, uh, oh. which is the shame. Cody's um, Trickies. Cody's Trickies. Um, imagine what could have been, um, or I guess what could still be, theoretically. It's not too late. Uh, but Jason had the closest correct guess, or not correct guess, the closest guess to the correct answer with four. So Jason gets the point there. That puts us at uh, Aaron with two and Harry and Jason. If uh, I can defend I can... myself, I was so uh, embarrassed by my my first answer that I, I tried to go really high because I was like, oh, she had 19 film appearances or whatever between 84 and 86. So I'm just going to, I'm going to go for it, you know? Yeah, the numbers come at you fast. I I don't uh, I don't besmirch you. That's the, <laughs> the maybe the most condescending possible response. The numbers come at you fast. I really they appreciate do. that before your answer, you said, "Hey, this answer is going to be it's going to be doo doo," uh, and then it turned out that yeah, it it, it was. Uh, I respect that. Hey, commitment. you weren't you weren't right either, bud. More right. So- more right. Oh boy. Um, anyways, this gets us to our, our, our final piece of chunk trivia. And this, uh, again, requires some extra buildup. So bear with me here. What I'm going to do first is read a quote that reportedly came from Maggie Chung. Now, this quote is about a movie that she was offered a role for, but that she ultimately turned down. After reading the quote, I'm going to start reading a description of the movie that's uh, being referenced, you know, that's being referred to. Once you think you know what movie is being described, raise your little Zencaster hand, um, and then I'll pause my reading, adjudicate on the correctness of your guess, and we'll go from there depending on if you're correct or not. Uh, so to re-sum that up, you're guessing a movie Maggie Chung was offered a role for but did not take using one, an alleged quote from the aforementioned Maggie Chung, and two, a description of the movie provided by me. Uh, use the Zencaster hand, uh, hand you have at your disposal. Any questions about that? Got it. Um, I understand the mechanics. Can you tell me if this is a movie that we would know or if it's buried? W- what kind of a I question would- is that? I wouldn't be bringing mm. in this into the arena if it weren't something that y'all Ooh, were uh, familiar okay. with. What an answer. So, uh, yeah. She was going to play Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. I was oh, literally going to say know. she was going to play Ant-Man in Spider-Man 2. <laughs> um, uh, we'll just get started. Uh, so here's uh, the quote, again, allegedly uh, from our queen. If I start making films like that, they won't be proud. I'd feel like I was cheating. And I don't want half the world, we have 1.3 billion people in China, to know I'm cheating. That matters to me. I have more pride than that. So again, that's the alleged quote. And here's the description. This is a film released in the year 2003. It's about two hours, 15 minutes long, rated PG-13. Its worldwide box office intake was over $400 million. Uh, Jason. Rush Hour 2. Rush Hour 2 is the guess. Uh, Rush Hour 2 is not the... but I, I like the attempt. Uh, that's motherfucker. This rush hour story. two was released in two thousand three. <laughs>
I have no rebuttal uh, to that. Jason, uh, Jason, if you wanted to insert some crickets, um, then then that I, we, I'm glad we left that dead space. Um, I'll continue. Um, so the last bit, worldwide box office intake was over $400 million. It was marketed under a few different titles, um, but I'll be flexible in what answers are submitted. It is a sequel. As much as it fit, uh, Aaron. Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2, whoops. Uh, Spider-Man 2 is the guess. Spider-Man 2 is not correct. So uh, it's 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 all it's all come down to Harry. Um, the last thing I said was it is a sequel. As much as it fits the descriptions of the genres action, thriller, and sci-fi, most would refer to this plainly as a superhero movie. Uh, the main character of this movie is played by someone I believe some of us here saw on stage one time. Uh, the guy who played Gandalf is in this movie. Um, the actor, rather, who played Gandalf is in this movie acting. Someone in this movie also portrayed Catwoman once. Uh, the last bit I have here, a movie from this franchise came out as recently as a few months ago. What movie is this? Here. So I, I knew what it was a while ago, but I had no reason not to let you finish. So thank you, Cody. Um, I believe this was X2, right? Would she have been asked to play Lady Deathstrike? My, so we, uh, you're correct. X2 is the correct answer. Um, I couldn't find information on the role offered. My guess was Deathstrike, not to like yeah. put Maggie Chung in a corner, but it's also like Hollywood putting actors in. Yeah, a I'm glad she didn't take that role. Me too. Um, yeah. And however we want to talk about the more we can, I, but that does conclude, uh, today's segment. Um, Aaron and Harry tied with two. Jason came in with one. Um, in conclusion, Maggie Chung, we love you. We love you, Maggie Chung. I like that that Harry and I have continued the trend of uh, generally winning Cody's noties. Unfortunate for Jason, you hate to see it week to week. But yeah, uh, yeah, you Aaron, know, I mean, uh, allegiance. I might, you know, strong. You know, while you're doing that, maybe I'll just like you know produce the show and keep it on the internet and make sure people can listen to it and stuff. <laughs> Jason, you're really you're like the Zeb to our uh, Yuddy. In oh, wow, wow, I am in this. I am O dot fended. I am never going to recover from that one. Jason. Don't worry. That wasn't you at the end of the movie. Apparently, My blood type is O. Fended. Uh, well, thank you so much, Cody, for making sure that we have uh, a great way to close each and every episode. One thought. That's going to be so much fun in person. If uh, God willing, there's a world in which we can still keep doing this in person Bro, again. Do not make me cry right now. Uh, it's now. I cannot wait to throw my hand up in the air and have to look at the screen for Aaron's hand to go up either on Zencaster or video chat or whatever we've got. Right. Cannot wait for that moment. It's going to be great. I'm going to be able to finally beat him. Uh, so this. Yeah. Someday. Someday. This has been our second episode in the Wong Kar Wai, excuse me, Wong Kar Watch. I'm, I'm, I apologize. I'm still getting used to the new branding. The Wong Kar Watch, uh, a series of uh, episodes of Trilove, where we're going to be covering the films of Wong Kar Wai as part of the World of Wong Kar Wai streaming event virtually through the Trilon, which you can find tickets for at trilon.org. I don't know how much longer they're going to be available. If this is moot by the time that this episode releases, forget it. But uh, look forward to another few episodes of Wong Kar Wai films. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove podcast go to dryland.org for is it dryland.org or dryland.com it's org. How, how have i done this so wrong for so long dryland.org for uh merch tickets uh other ways to support the trilon in uh rough times for movie theaters and a lot of other businesses around the world um it's a stupid stupid world uh and just 
find find ways to support the causes that you think are important. Uh, and wear your mask when you go out. And uh, I packed a lunch for you. I uh, I'll be back around three thirty to pick you up. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendofus. Wow, Jason, you can pick me up any day. Uh, if you go out, wear a mask. Uh, shouldn't bear repeating, but we'll repeat it anyway. Um, I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore bh. Uh, don't be like Yuddy. Try to do as little harm as you can to the woman who loves you. Um, I've been Harry. I'm at Shitaki Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. Trilon.com is some sort of a energy and telecommunications provider. Uh, under what we do, it says Trilon specializes in developing, supplying, and building wireless networks and in building telecommunication systems and infrastructural support for energy production and transmission. No, that's the right site. Uh, you know what? That's kind of what the try. No, uh, I'm Aaron. Let's you can find me. Please, please. Uh, yeah, stay safe. January 19th, 2021. One minute before three. We were here together. I'll always remember that minute because of you. From now on, we're one minute friends. It's a fact. You can't deny it. It's already happened. I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.